Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to have Thierry Cruvelier on the show. Thierry is a journalist who has spent years of his life observing the trials of people accused of committing war crimes and crimes against human rights. He's written two books about what he has witnessed. The first, Court of Remorse, dealt with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. His most recent book, the subject of our interview today, is titled The Master of Confessions, The Making of a Khmer Rouge Torturer, published by Echo Books. It's a tremendously insightful account of the trial of Doik, the commander of the S-21 prison in Cambodia during the rule of the Khmer Rouge. The book is an account of the trial, but it's much more than that. It's an attempt to understand Doik and his actions, an attempt to understand how international tribunals work and don't work, and especially a reflection on what it means to be guilty of such crimes and what it might mean to repent of them. It's a fabulous book, one that I highly recommend, and I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with him about it. So, Thierry, welcome and thanks for so much for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be part of your program. So why don't we start off, I'd like to give you a chance just to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So as you say, I've been a journalist for about 25 years, and what happened briefly is that in the early and mid-90s, I was covering essentially two countries in Africa, Sierra Leone in West Africa, and Rwanda in Central Africa. And after I was uh, based in Rwanda, that's when the Rwanda Tribunal was established. And for me and a few colleagues of mine, it was, it was an opportunity to continue working on the Rwanda genocide and the Rwanda story, but in a different way. And it was a bit of our Nuremberg moment, mm-hmm. if, I, if I can say it this way. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Arusha, where the tribunal was established, right when the first trial started. And I just stayed. For some reason, I stayed five years in Arusha, but uh, for some reason, for the following 15 years, I've just been covering war crime tribunals in Rwanda. Then, of course, I moved to Sierra Leone, which also had one, and in Bosnia and in Cambodia. So that became my field of work. Um, The reason for it, I guess, is that I found courts to be an incredible way of continuing to to work and and understand the story of a country at a particularly uh, extreme time mm-hmm. through a lens that is manageable because a trial a court offers an environment and and a lens that that you can manage as opposed to the whole history of a country and so. Uh, gradually I I felt that these subjects were so interesting in so many different Mm -hmm. ways that you could follow a trial of course with a legal perspective but you can also look at it with uh, uh, philosophically or psychologically or socially or historically there are many many ways to cover and think about a war crimes trial. And that's how I gradually just kept doing it for all this time. 
So what what's the difference between trying to write to report for a newspaper or a journal, something where you read short uh, pieces about this as you go? What's the difference between that and, and writing a book about one of these trials? E, that's a it's it is definitely different. Uh, reporting on a more daily basis, you really concentrate on on the facts of the case, on what um, has been said in court by different parties. That's part of the work. Although I have tried most of the time to also investigate the, the, the way the, the institution works, mm-hmm. the, way the judicial mm-hmm. institution works. So uh, then in that case, you do a bit more of investigative work rather mm-hmm. than just uh, covering uh, the hearings, but eventually, in my reporting, I would certainly, perhaps it also because of my French tradition, but I would certainly refrain from putting anything from me in it, hmm. for sure. And I think I would also limit to a good extent because there's no space for it or we have no time for it. I lim- we, we would limit a lot of, of the deeper analysis on what we see, on what we observe, and on what we mm. experience. And so the book, writing books became a sort of necessity, a necessity for me because it appeared to be the only way to reach a better, deeper understanding and sharing uh, the experience of foreign war crimes tribunals in a better way mm-hmm. by being allowed to take some distance with facts and also to um, um, yeah, to be less trapped by the details of a particular case or of a particular institution. It would also, writing books also allowed me, I guess, to go a bit uh, uh, deeper also in the characters that mm-hmm. constitute the world of international justice. And it's a fabulous range of characters, which is also what I think uh, makes it so valuable for writers or journalists to, to, mm-hmm. to witness this kind of trial is that you have in one single space uh, and a vast number of characters that go from lawyers to farmers to human rights activists mm-hmm. to bureaucrats to businessmen, really all sorts of uh, people come to a war crime tribunal mm-hmm. or are part of it. And I guess in a, in a book, you can also allow these characters to take their real place as opposed to... Um, a more uh, shortened and restricted uh, news report. So why did you decide to write a book about this trial? The Doig trial, it, when, when it started, I had already been covering war crimes tribunals for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So they probably, it probably came at a time where I was getting my energy to keep covering these trials was, was getting uh, 
smaller. It's exhausting. Let's be, <laughs> let's be very clear. It's mm-hmm. both fascinating and taxing. Mm-hmm. As any, any one of us can imagine, the kind of stuff you are listening to all the time is extremely heavy mm-hmm. and tragic. And so over the years, I could really realize that um, I was beginning to pay the, uh, the price for it. But when the Dai trial uh, uh, happened to take place in Phnom Penh, I realized that Doik was a totally unique hmm. uh, moment where I could perhaps have access like never before to the voice of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And when you cover these trials, you sort of realize how, uh, how key, crucial it is to be able to listen to the explanations and the feelings of those who actually participated in the crime mm-hmm. in order to just better understand how we get there, how people like you and me, normal people, mm-hmm. become mass murderers in exceptional circumstances. These kind of crimes in these trials are, are specific. They're, they're, they're eminently political crimes, mm-hmm. and they're committed by a mass of people. And so, Doik was very unique in a sense that he accepted responsibility. He uh, he acknowledged what happened uh, under the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia in the late seventies. Um, and you need that. You need so you need a perpetrator who actually pleads guilty if you want. Mm-hmm. But then. Uh, the situation was that in Cambodia, they would apply a French law system. And in that system, the civil law system, you don't have plea bargaining as opposed to mm. what you know in America or in England. Um, you, you don't have plea bargaining. So someone who pleads guilty has a full trial. And in every other international tribunal, war crime tribunal, it wouldn't be that system that, that, that applies. It would be much more a common law system. So whenever a key perpetrator had decided to plead guilty, for us, the public, it would be a one-day hearing, you know, when the judges just agree to, mm-hmm. to or disagree, but they always agree, on an agreement between the accused and the prosecutor that has been made behind the scenes. So what we know is just the agreement. It's a one-day hearing, but we never have the voice of the perpetrator. In the case of Doik in Cambodia, we would have it because the system did not allow hmm. a guilty plea. And so I thought this was a very unique uh, opportunity to, to get closer to what it is the experience from the point of view of the perpetrator and how does he look at what um, he had participated in Mm-hmm. And also, how does he live with it afterwards? So that's why I decided that I should uh, uh, cover one more trial, uh, which was that one. And so I went to, I stayed in, in Cambodia and I stayed about four years to cover the full uh, process. So let's, let's, 
then take up that the trial directly, and it's centered around what happens around uh, or at. Uh, a prison called S, or referred to generally as S21 and its associated killing fields. Some of the audience is probably familiar with this, but some not. Can you describe briefly what S21 was and what role it played during the Khmer Rouge rule? S21 was the most important prison center under the Khmer Rouge regime. The Khmer Rouge regime was from April 75 to January 79. And during those years, you had probably about 200 prisons all over the country. Hmm. But S21 was the key prison in the capital city and the most secret one because it dealt with the most sensitive cases that the Communist Party considered. And particularly, the way the party would decide to purge itself from its perceived enemies from within, they would all be sent to S21. So that makes S21, S21 pretty specific in the, the whole uh, mm-hmm. terror system under Pol Pot. But the other thing that makes it special, of course, is that its director, for most of the time, that man Doig, who was first deputy director the first year and then became director for the following three years, left all the archives of the prison behind when they had to flee when the Vietnamese troops invaded Cambodia and overthrew the Pol Pot regime. It went so fast and he didn't receive any order to destroy the archives, so he left them behind. And so the Estonian archives have become by far the most important set of material from which historians have worked to understand how Cambodia worked during those years, because we we may remember that during these four years, there were no witnesses. Nobody could be in Cambodia during that time. There were no journalists, no foreigners, or the few who were there were completely blocked in some very specific parts of Cambodia. of Phnom Penh. So this, the S21 archives are of incredible value historically. And they help us understand the regime like no other stuff. In a way, actually, if Doik had destroyed the archive, hmm. we probably wouldn't know today who he was. Mm-hmm. There would be no trace of it. And we certainly would never know what how S21 had been functioning as not only a prison center, but a death center, because what made it very also specific with S21 is that if you went in, you would not go out alive. Mm -hmm. The the rule was that you would be, as they say, destroyed or or smashed, as the court decided to translate the Khmer word. Um, And so... To give you an idea, we probably about a dozen prisoners um, survived S21 when the Vietnamese came because they were prisoners that were used for specific purposes until they were themselves, of course, executed. But somehow when when the prison was uh, was abandoned, they didn't kill these uh, few survivors. 
And so seven were very quickly identified and they have remained the only seven survivors we have known mm. from the prison. And when the trial started, to give you an idea, in 2009, three of them were still alive. Today, mm. only two are alive. So that was S21. That's the prison that Doig has been the director of. And it's a, it's a very specific uh, prison but it's also a prison that is a good example of what was going on throughout the country. So who ends up in this prison? And why did they end up there? At the beginning, it was mostly those from the previous regime who would be uh, imprisoned and purged there. But rather quickly, and, uh, and it also at the time when the, the Doig becomes the director, the party makes a decision that this prison is going to be mainly there to purge the party itself, hmm. to eliminate members of the Central Committee or even of the most important uh, organ, the, the, the very small, what we call the ANCAR, which means the hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. So that's the steering committee, if you wish, of, of the party even members of that committee would be purged, and thousands of members of the army. And so that's uh, mainly what this prison actually became for. We estimate today that 80% of the victims at S21 were members of the Khmer Rouge party or, Hmm. uh, or army. That was its main function in a way. That's the paradox of S21, which also makes it fascinating when it comes to how do we reconstruct memory. Because today, S21 is a genocide museum that perhaps many of our listeners will have visited when they went to Mm -hmm. Phnom Penh, because when you go to Phnom Penh, you visit four sites, the museum, uh, the palace, the royal palace, and S21 and the killing fields. It is the place that today represents what happened during those four years of terror. And yet, as a paradox, 80% of the victims were part of the regime, were members of the regime, Hmm. which is fascinating in a way, when you think about the way memory is reconstructed. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the paradox of Doig was that he was a Khmer Rouge killing Khmer Rouge to a large extent. Um, Of course, let's not forget that you still have the 20% who were not. And also, let's be careful by by saying this, I'm I'm not saying that those who were killed deserve to be killed and certainly not uh, uh, tortured and killed the way they were. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that it makes it a bit complicated when it comes to their own um, responsibility mm-hmm. in, the, in the machine that eventually killed them. So we've been talking about this as a trial where Doik is on trial. But in fact, he doesn't get that name until relatively late or, or, or relatively recently before he, he ends up in the 
in this position. Uh, who was Doik before he became Doik? Yeah, which is another part of what made this uh, trial really, really valuable to me and relevant is that Doik was a math teacher coming from a rather uh, very modest background. So a very successful child who made it to become a teacher, which was pretty, pretty impressive rather exceptional in mm -hmm. Cambodia of the 60s, where very few people would reach that level of education, especially when you were not from the elite. Mm -hmm. And so, Doug becomes a math teacher who is beloved by his students. There have been uh, many, many uh, uh, witnesses came to try to describe and tell the, the Doig they got to know before he became a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And um, unanimously, he was uh, a very good and devoted teacher who, in the 60s, in, in, a, in a country where the, the gap between the have and the haves and the have-nots were, were huge, he was like many young intellectuals. He became attracted by political philosophies such as Marxism and uh, a way to get to social justice and the emancipation of, of uh, the poorer classes. That's initially the story of Doig. Then, as a, as a number of young intellectuals of his generation at the time, then he decided to join the Communist Party, who was a banned party at the time. And he actually got arrested immediately after he joined the party and was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment um, for, I can't remember how they called the charge, seditious uh, activities or that kind of thing. But after two years, he got released uh, thanks to a coup d'etat. And, um, and soon after, one, right after he got released, then he really joined the armed rebellion in the bush, in the forests of, of Cambodia. And that's really the moment where this man, whose name is Kengekyu, becomes the revolutionary dog. By then, when he joins the Khmer Rouge, the guerrilla has, be has been taking place for about three years. It still is its in, in, in its early stages, but it's growing. And um, I think the movement clearly identifies Doik as not a soldier, is not a man for combat. And they immediately use him more in what is going to become, if you want, the, the police mm -hmm. of the system. And so very, very quickly, he becomes in charge of a camp, of a prisoner's camp which is called M13. M13 is a, is a prototype, if you can, can you say that, mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of what S21 will become uh, four years later. Everything that has been developed and applied in terms of torture, in terms of interrogation techniques, this need for the party to get um, uh, confessions, from 
its prisoners before they kill them. All this is developed gradually at M13 over a period of four years before the Khmer Rouge take power. And then Doig is raised to the responsibility of the most important prisoner as we saw. And then, so Doig is, is a young teacher who becomes a mass murderer over a period of eight years. And I would say eight years only, which also makes it particularly interesting for us, I think, is that Doik was not a mass murderer before mm-hmm. and won't be again after. Once the Vietnamese invade Cambodia and put an end to the Pol Pot regime, Doik stays with the Khmer Rouge. The guerrilla is going to the, the, the Khmer Rouge will remain as, as an armed movement for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. The end of the civil war in, in Cambodia is only 98. So from 1977 to 1998, essentially, Doik stays in the, in the movement. But he has no function anymore. He's useless <laughs> in a way. We, we don't need police when you are at war. You need police when you are in power, but you don't police anymore. And so Doik no longer is known for no other criminal activities after 79. And he's going to become gradually a teacher again. And when he's arrested, when he's identified and arrested, he's, um, he's both been a teacher again for a few years and he's working for uh, a, an American charity. Under a different name. Mm-hmm. That's the story of Doig. And um, I think it also made this trial so exceptional because of his because of his background, because that makes it a well meant man who becomes a devoted killer and and then stops being one. And also because Doig appeared, and that I didn't know when I, of course, started to cover the trial, the, the, nobody knew how Doig would be such an interesting and sophisticated character. And um, particularly, he has incredible memory, really remarkable memories, a man who can remember the details of a particular story of one of his prisoners from 30 years before, 40 years before, including prisoners on whom no documents have been kept. He's a man who can quote uh, a full number of, uh, you know, it was a huge file, as you can imagine, in his case, and he can tell the the particular uh, number of the file he's quoting even though it's, they are really long, complicated numbers. Anyway, he's a, he's a man with particularly interesting skills, intellect, hmm. and he's also a man, as opposed to, I think, a number of war criminals I have uh, witnessed elsewhere in other tribunals were not necessarily capable of uh, reflecting on the system they have served. Mm-hmm. And Doik is a man who can absolutely reflect on the ideology he has believed in and he has served. That makes that also made it incredibly interesting. 
Of course, Doric could not admit everything. Of course, Doric has its limits. There are things he cannot go, he cannot go too far in his admissions. Otherwise, probably, there would be no way for him to stay alive, to live with it. But he goes pretty far, as mm-hmm. opposed to many others. And especially among the Khmer Rouge, of course, um, that makes him a bit special because he's, he's the only Khmer Rouge of his level mm-hmm. who has admitted and recognized both his responsibility and the responsibility of the, ide- of the ideology he has served and the system he has been part of. That made the, the trial particularly rich at, at many levels, uh, as you can understand. Well, the title of your book is Master of Confessions, and, and, and I may have missed at least one layer or maybe more, but, but it's at least got two meanings as I read the book, right? And one of them is that he, of course, is the master of the process at S21 of, of getting confessions, whether by persuasion or by torture or anywhere in between. But the other aspect of that is that you, you seem to suggest that he in some way is the master of the courtroom. Well, yeah, well, I'm, you're right. I think there are two ways to take it. He was, when he was the director of the prison, he was the master of the confessions of these prisoners. That was his passion. That's what he really, really enjoyed, is how, do I, how am I going to get this guy to confess? Of course, it's not that impressive when you think about it, because <laughs> using extreme cruel treatments mm-hmm. that very few human beings could bear. So, of course, there's something foolish about his own pride in, in, his, uh, in his capacity to get all these confessions. However, he was certainly the best interrogator uh, among them all. And so, in that sense, yes, he appeared at the time he was the director of the prison to be the master of confessions. But then, 20 years later, when he is brought before the court, 30 years later, he confesses. And so, the whole point of the trial is we are now dealing with his confessions. Mm-hmm. And to me, to a large extent, I found him to be capable of mastering his own confessions mm-hmm. in the sense that he kept incredible control over all those months. It was uh, about six months nonstop, you know, testimonies, very, very heavy, difficult hearings with many witnesses, victims, families, and although there were a few times that I that are absolutely fascinating, that I tell in the book where Doig breaks down, mm-hmm. breaks apart, but it never really, really becomes a full destruction. Doig keeps control. All the, all, the, all the way along and until the end of the trial. And so that's why the title has this double meaning because he was also, to a good extent, the master of his own confessions. 
So, so what did he admit to? It's a good point because sometimes I feel like, what are we talking about exactly? In a sense that, as I said, she left his archives behind. Mm-hmm. And they were extraordinarily meticulous archives. You know, Doik would, would keep everything in order. And so there was hardly anything he could really deny. Mm-hmm. Because the evidence against him was compa- was so compelling, um, so he admitted to um, to the the way that S twenty one was a place where you know people would be tortured to death, and uh, and that they they would the whole functioning of the court he basically described and um, and admitted his own responsibility into it, as well as the responsibility of, of his superiors and of the head of the Communist Party. Um, you, so, so to a good extent, you, should, you, you, you could ask, yes, but he couldn't deny it because of the evidence. It's true. It's partly true. But actually, Doig refused to recognize a number of facts that... Mm-hmm. Um, other researchers or the prosecutor would consider as um, proven or uh, supported by the evidence. Doik would not admit everything. And um, there are things he has been struggling with, especially when it comes to his own personal involvement in brutality. This is not very specific to Doik, but... um, Yes, Doik had a hard time accepting, for instance, that um, children would be thrown against, thrown alive against trees, beaten against trees to to be killed. All these very gory, very uh, morally uh, awful details of the killing machine it was sometimes a bit difficult for Doig to admit, or at least he would agree that it must have happened because witnesses would mm-hmm. tell about it, but he would say that he didn't know, or that was mm-hmm. not uh, following his orders. That was not the kind of order he would give. But most of it he, he, he agreed. So yes, I think... His admission, his confession, is both about the whole killing machine that was taking place at S21. And he actually gave, I think, a much better understanding of Hmm. the killing machine than the one we could get only from the archives. Like, what we knew before the trial was already quite important, but the, the precision that that Doig gave to the, to the real inner functioning was, was valuable to, to better understand what was, what was allowed, what was not, and how the whole thing functioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, the second thing that uh, was very helpful in what he confessed is who was deciding above him. Because Doig was an important man in the killing machine. He was a commander, if you want. But he was not the one who decided. He was not a member of the 
central committee. He was not a member of the steering committee. But he helped understand better what was the direct link he had with the very, very top of the party, meaning the five to seven members of the Politburo. And um, that helped a lot, of course, to be more precise also on the responsibility of his superiors. One of them, and the direct one, was Nunchea, who has actually been uh, found guilty just last mm -hmm. week in the only other trial that would take place probably in Phnom Penh. So that's also what Doig helped to do, is to establish such, such kind of individual and direct responsibility of the big leaders. And for those listeners who have started listening to the show relatively recently, we actually interviewed Gina Chan, who wrote a book based on hundreds of hours of interviews with Nanchia. Uh, maybe three or four years ago, and so you can go back in the archives and look at that. What was the prosecution's argument? The prosecution argument was essentially, and that I would take this because that's what made it a, a bit of a disagreement with the defense, was mm -hmm. that he was he was more he was also a man who could decide. Their point was not that he was only a very zealous commander and perpetrator, but that he, he had a level of decision-making. He had an influence on the system that would go beyond just being someone who follows orders. So their argument in that sense was that he was a willing, highly willing um, member of the machine and an overzealous and with no uh, sense of you know no sense of remorse whatsoever and that to a good extent his confession was more evidence of his manipulative mind rather than a genuine remorse they denied him uh, the dimension of uh, the, the genuine dimension of his remorse. So, as opposed to the defense, who would say that uh, that one the the remorse was genuine, and um, and also that in the system in which Doik was caught, anyway, you had no choice. It was under the terror of the Khmer Rouge, which is an incredibly high level of terror. Mm -hmm. um, the, the margin of choice was reduced to almost nothing in the sense that even if you were part of the system, you could be killed. There was a good chance you would be killed. And even if you participated enthusiastically, you could be killed. Um, options like fleeing were admittedly extremely narrow unless you had the chance of living just a couple of kilometers from the border and you could take mm. you know you could take a chance to go to Vietnam or Thailand which is what some of the current leaders of Cambodia did they were former Khmer Rouge who decided in 77 to flee but they were based very close to the border but if you were in Phnom Penh 
there was no way you could escape. And anyway, if you did, the whole family would stay behind and would be eliminated. So the cost of, I mean, the, the, yeah, the choice was a matter of, of course, argument in court. The prosecutor and some of their witnesses uh, would try to establish that, uh, that there is always choice. I thought there was a really interesting moment, actually, in the trial, hmm. because the question was really, is there always a choice? In the case of Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, to me, it's one of these really situations that are so extreme that you really wonder what was that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, as opposed to Rundown, which I have worked, you know, over a long period of time, uh, or even Germany under the Nazi. Mm-hmm. If you're on the right side, if you were good white German non-Jewish mm-hmm. uh, Catholic, whatever, in a, in Nazi Germany, you could decide. Perhaps you have. You have perhaps a margin where you could decide at least not to participate. Opposing is a tough choice because then you can die, but you can perhaps not participate. In uh, Rwanda, if you're a Hutu, you you certainly have an option to flee. You can run away. You can cross the border. Nobody is going to stop you at the the checkpoints, at the roadblocks. You're going to go through if you have the right... Uh, you know, ID, ID card. In Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, no. It's a level of control and terror that is very hard to uh, compete with. And so I thought it was one of these moments where the question of choice was was very relevant mm-hmm. in, a way in, the, in the case of Doi. Mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't make the crime... Uh, it, it doesn't make the crime lesser. It doesn't make it a lesser crime. Not at all. It just makes it a bit more complicated for us to judge what we would have done, what we could have done in a similar situation. And this way, it helps perhaps, this, this trial in particular helps us understand how mass crime works and how mass crime needs the participation of people like us and forces the participation of people like us to achieve its goals. So as as I'm coming toward the end of your book, uh, I come to your description of the closing arguments of, of the defense and the prosecution. And it's a startling story. And as I'm reading it, I'm trying to decide whether you're narrating it as a comedy or a tragedy or a drama. Um, Can you talk about what happens during the closing arguments and what that says about what the trial is really about? Yeah, the trial was already, I think, was already exceptional. By the time we we reached the closing arguments, I think it was already an incredibly unique trial in terms of what we got on... on, uh, Precisely what I said at the beginning, which is trying to get as close as it gets to the understanding of the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Um, And then 
It was a coup de théâtre, as we say in France. An incredible, purely, I would say purely judicial moment. Court, you know, court drama, when the very last week, in the very last three days, one of the lawyers of Doik, because Doik had an international lawyer, mm-hmm. Frenchman, and a Cambodian lawyer. Every team had to get a sort of mixed uh, team because it was a hybrid, what we call a hybrid court where both nationals and internationals share responsibility at every level. And suddenly the Cambodian lawyer of Doig decides to completely reverse the plea by saying, by adopting a, a, a line that is absolutely incompatible with what has been the position of the defense since the beginning of the case, mm-hmm. which is that Doig should not be tried because the court has no jurisdiction if we agree that this court was only meant to judge the most responsible uh, uh, people in the, in the regime. And given the level of responsibility in the system of Doig, you know, as a mid-level commander, he should have never been tried. And basically forced to say what he wanted to mean by that, the defense lawyer had to say that they were asking for a quill, mm-hmm. which was certainly not what had been the position <laughs> from the start. And of course, technically, legally speaking, it was absurd to bring this at the very last mm-hmm. day. You can't. Even technically, you can't. You have to be, you know, these pre-trial kind of mm-hmm. issues. So, but yet it happened. And live, you would see the French lawyer who had been an absolutely essential character in the whole trial. You know, I think that to a good extent, he had the trial to also have the level that it had the quality that it, mm-hmm. the fairness that it showed. This man was at the end of his career, it was his last trial, it was his last closing argument of a very successful and rich career. Mm-hmm. And he would be stabbed by his colleague and his client because Doig decided to just go with his Cambodian lawyer. And so... That was incredible drama at the very end, which didn't change a thing mm-hmm. when it comes to the judgment. Mm-hmm. Actually, the trial judges, to a good extent in their judgment, decided to disregard that last-minute crazy moment and just stuck to what was reasonable. Mm-hmm. Rightly so, in my view. But it did have an impact on how people would perceive Doig. Mm. So it sort of give, it, it gave also a reason for those who had believed from day one, which was a lot of the civil parties, the, 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 the victims and their families, that Doig was not genuine, was just a manipulative man. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, for them it was evidence that this is what it was. No, and that uh, Doig was a Khmer Rouge, and once a Khmer Rouge, Khmer Rouge forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and others who just not give it too much of, of this kind of meaning. Uh, oh, hold on. Others, like the defense, like this French lawyer, would see in that last-minute uh, change of position political influence, which was interesting because mm-hmm. this is a court that was always suspected to be under highly political influence from the government, who is run by former Khmer Rouge. Hmm. And so, in his view, it was a sign that some, at some upper level, there had been uh, decisions made sort of uh, weaken the court through such a change of line through the Cambodian law. A third explanation was much more to say, well, um, it, was, it was not really a sign of Doig's change of mind. And what supports this is that Doig actually came later at the following trial. He came as a witness. You know, he never stopped, in a way, he never stopped cooperating with mm-hmm. the court, including after being sentenced to life. Hmm. Um, and if he was such a disindigenous man, only driven by his own interest, I don't really see why he would still be coming as a witness yeah. because he has no interest in it. Uh, the political line was, I think, also weakened by the fact that if it was political, we would have seen it through the Cambodian judges who are under heavy political influence, and we didn't see that uh, neither at the judgment level nor at the appeals level. Mm-hmm. So I think it dismissed the political theory to a good extent. Perhaps that's what I would suggest. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm right, but what I think is that it's a, it was just a more accidental, mm. contingent moment where the Cambodian lawyer got... Uh, carried away by his own obsession with this argument and and the fact that he was back he was back against the wall instead of instead of uh, of giving up it was that moment of uh, panache if you want mm-hmm. by just saying I'm mm-hmm. just going to go all the way without mm-hmm. having a clue of the consequences uh, <laughs> I think it was more this and in, and when it comes to Doig, at least we should keep in mind what can be the psychology of a man who had been in, who had been in jail for ten years already, and who is suddenly told by one of his lawyers that he could be set he could be set free right away if he wins. In my experience, I have never seen a single war crimes. A perpetrator who pleads guilty was confessed and genuinely confessed and genuinely accepted responsibility and, and cooperated with the judiciary, not being sensitive and attracted by a lesser sentence. Mm. No man, you know, can resist the idea of doing less time in jail. And I think that's one of the little things that we should keep in mind to, to better understand Doi. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Doig always goes where the power is. Mm. And 
He knew also that once the court is, has closed down, when all these international people leave, he's stuck with Cambodians. He's stuck with mm -hmm. the Cambodian authorities. And that's where the real power lies. And he better follow what his Cambodian lawyer tells him because this man had been there before and will still be there once the court has closed down. Um, so I think it was much more of a contingent accident of a trial. Yet, it was spectacular. And it was, it was an extraordinary moment of drama, of tension, of emotions at the very, very last minute hmm. of that trial which, again, as I said, was already, I think, an extraordinary case and became, as you said, um, you didn't know what it was anymore. It was like a tragic comedy. It was tragic. It was a comedy. It was everything at the same time. Um, but, yeah, very much of a Shakespeare kind of mm. ending. Well, it's a fabulous book, and, and there's much more in the book than we have time to, to, to give credit to or, or due to, it's due to now. I, one kind of broad, maybe more personal question. You've been watching trials like this for a long time. What has that done to you? Not any good things. <laughs> uh, without... Going into details, I think that, yes, um, you, you accumulate uh, such a number of um, tragic memories and emotions and events that eventually it does affect you, to, uh, it does affect your, your spirit, your, I think, your morale or and um, it's one of the reasons why when the dark trial started, I was, I was already thinking about putting an end to my work. Not because it's, it was still fascinating, it was incredibly important and interesting, but I thought that uh, there was a level of sadness inside me that mm -hmm. had become way too heavy and, uh, and costly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so actually what I'm an answer to it is a bit what I'm trying to do now is to move away from mm -hmm. uh, from the field it's gradual because I don't need to make it like a, a, a very clear cut but yes I haven't been following another trial since the dark trial and I don't intend to Mm. I think that my time in uh, my time in court is actually over at least for a long while. Um, I'm working right now on a on a book on Sierra Leone, which is a place mm. I have been working a lot and going back and forth in the last 25 years. So it makes total sense for me to tell the the story of this little known country of West Africa. And of course, there will be a little part that is about the court. Mm -hmm. and justice, and war crimes justice, and there's a big part that is also about the war. But I'm trying to already in that 
next book to expand it to other issues and uh, issues that could be sometimes a bit uh, more cheerful. Um, so so the, I'm trying to answer your question as best as I can. It is, I have learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I have learned a lot about how we function, how we human beings function in extreme circumstances, which still is a theme that I'm, that I'm working on and I'm still working on is how do we behave as human beings yeah. in very extreme circumstances. And I am, so uh, witnessing these trials has been incredibly uh, valuable for me in that respect. Uh, and at the same time, it has been very costly in what, um, in what you accumulate in your system. Mm-hmm. So I think it's time for me to gradually uh, move away, at least from courtrooms, mm-hmm. Um, and I think all these themes will, will remain in my work, obviously, at least for a long while, but I'm trying to, to write about them differently uh, from one book to another to try to also uh, talk and write about justice, about war crimes in a different way each time hmm. and in a way that is gradually moving away from the punishment idea mm-hmm. and, uh, and the legal idea to perhaps a, a much more uh, human level hmm. and dimension. As I said, it's a great story, and I highly recommend that people go read it or buy it or both. And uh, you've given us a lot of your time. And so I wanted to say, again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And uh, hopefully down the line, perhaps we'll have a chance to have you on the show or on one of our sister channels again. So thanks again. You've been listening to an interview with Thierry Crivellier about his book, The Master of Confessions, The Making of a Khmer Rouge Torturer. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you come back next time when I talk with Ernesto Verdeja about the book he and Joyce Epsel edited entitled Genocide Matters, Ongoing Issues and Emerging Perspectives. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.